Well, good morning and welcome again to those of you here uh, worshiping with us in the building and to those of you who are online. Hi, Mom. Would you begin by praying with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that you send your spirit on us now, that by you we might know you. Through your son Jesus, we ask it. Amen. When I was fresh out of university and keen to save the world, I had a job working with the world's meanest philanthropist. This was somebody who led a globally renowned organization dedicated to making the world a better place. The problem was that he didn't like people very much. The closer you got to him, the meaner and, in fact, more abusive he was. Turned out he really only liked people when they were at a distance, an idealized, faceless group like humanity, whatever that means. He wasn't so good with individuals who are messy, broken, and difficult. It's actually pretty easy to be a philanthropist, which literally means lover of humanity. All you have to do is have enough money. What's super hard is loving actual, specific people. It's easy to be a philanthropist. What's hard is to be a friend. And what we see in this fourth of five resurrection stories is that the God we meet in Jesus Christ is not a philanthropist, is not a lover of humanity but a friend to real people. And the single point and purpose of this sermon this morning is to show you, as the old hymn has it, what a friend we have in Jesus. A resurrection story tells us about a crazy haul of fish and breakfast on a beach 2,000 years ago. But underneath the details, this is the story about a resurrection of a friendship. The friendship between Jesus and Peter the leader of his followers. And to understand why this is a story about a restored friendship, we first have to understand how the friendship got broken in the first place, so a quick recap. Before Jesus died on the cross and was raised back to life, he had traveled the countryside for three years, teaching and performing miracles. And during his travels, he accumulated hundreds and thousands of followers, uh, students, disciples, people who wanted to learn from him, learn how to be like him, people like us. But of those thousands, there were just 12 men he called apostles. Apostle means sent. They were his advance team heading out to share the news that he was teaching, and they were his inner circle. The 12 went everywhere with him. They were his friends. And if you've ever been part of a really good team at work, you know what I'm talking about. Of these 12 apostles, these 12 friends, there were two that were really special. Here's a picture of them running to the empty tomb on Easter morning. One was John, the author of the gospel story we heard today. That's him on the left. He was a disciple that Jesus had a special bond with and the greatest theologian of all time, if you ask me. And the other was Peter there on the right. Peter wasn't the name his parents had given him. His parents named him Simon, but Jesus nicknamed him Peter. It means rock. On this rock, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. That was Peter. He's always listed first among the apostles. He was their leader, their spokesman. He was impulsive, hot-headed, emotional. He's the first to name Jesus as Christ, the anointed Savior. Peter loved Jesus. But he broke their friendship. 
The night before Jesus was crucified, he told his 12 friends that he was going to die, and Peter said, I'm going to lay down my life for you. But Jesus said, actually, before daybreak, you're going to deny me three times. And later, when Jesus is in custody and headed for the cross, that's just what happens. Peter denies even knowing Jesus three times, and then the rooster crows. Peter descends into utter grief at what he's done, and Jesus dies. But then Easter, blammo, he's raised, and the resurrection has changed everything, except what Peter did. Because the resurrection may have undone Jesus' death, but it doesn't change that Peter left him to die. And when Jesus shows up like, I'm alive, they don't talk about it. It's the elephant in the room. The fact that the last time he saw his best friends, they were running away from him. Think about how the apostles must have felt to see Jesus alive. Like, he's back. Is he mad? Go proclaim the good news to the whole world, Jesus says. Just totally ignoring how Peter denied his friend. So it's all good, except not for Peter. For Peter, the resurrection just means the unfinished business of a broken friendship. All right, so fast forward a couple weeks to our reading this morning that Dan just read for us. The apostles have left Jerusalem. They've headed back to their hometowns in the north. What else are they going to do? Start Christianity? How do you do that? Stay tuned for our preaching series on the Holy Spirit. And can't you just imagine the scene as our reading begins? These guys sitting around one evening, they have run out of things to talk about because none of them has a hot clue what to do. And Peter can't take it anymore, and he's like, I'm going fishing. And six of the guys say, like, yeah, that sounds all right, we're coming to. So they go fishing with nets at night, which is evidently a thing. And just to add insult to injury, they catch nothing. Jesus told them they'd be fishers of men. Now they can't even fish for fish. And then it's just after daybreak, and they're probably packing up to head home when a figure calls to them from the beach. It's about 100 yards away, close enough to hear. Sound travels well over water, too far to see, especially in the dawn light. And this person says, try the other side of the boat. Well, I don't know much about fishing, but I can tell you this is pretty much garbage advice if it's coming from anybody except the Lord God Almighty because fish swim, and the idea there's no fish here, but there's a boatload of fish here is crazy. But for some reason, they do it, and darned if it doesn't nearly capsize their boat. This massive net just bulging with fish, so many it should have broken, but it didn't. And John, cool, cerebral, transcendent John, he looks at the net, and he looks at the figure on the beach, and he says in that way, he has, you know the way, it drives the other disciples crazy. He says, it is the Lord. And then Peter, hot-headed, emotional, impulsive Peter, throws himself into the water. On Easter morning, John had looked into the tomb, just looked and believed, but Peter's a jumper. He dives in. He dove into the empty tomb. He dives into the sea. This is the same Peter who walked on water one time and sank for his lack of faith, but now it's Peter's best friend standing there. And this might be his one chance to make things right, right? Like Jesus showed up twice. There was no guarantee of a third time. So Peter, who's been casting nets into the water all night long, casts himself without a second thought. While his friends are watching him swim away, like, okay, Peter, I guess we'll bring the boat and the fish. And of course, it's actually pretty awkward when they all get to shore. There's Peter still breathing hard. He sprinted for shore, but what's he supposed to say now? Sorry? 
and there's a little cook fire with some bread and fish, and there's Jesus. They know it's Jesus. There's something confusing about him. It's like when Mary met him in the garden and thought he was the gardener. I don't know why. Resurrection's weird. Anyway, Jesus says, bring some of those fish, and Peter's like, I'm on it. You don't know whether to laugh or cry at this guy. He's like a kid who got in trouble and so desperately wants to make everything okay that solo he's dragging this net of 153 fish out of the water. And quick side note, have you ever met a fisherman? Of course they counted the fish. There were so many fish. How many fish were there, John? There were 153 fish. That's what he said. They wrote it down. We've had it for 2,000 years. And then they have breakfast. And we don't know what they talk about or maybe nobody said a word. Maybe they were just savoring every moment because they'd traveled with Jesus for three years and the best mornings of their life had been spent around cook fires just like that and they thought they'd never get the chance to do it again. But after breakfast, we get this dialogue that we see in verses 15 to 19 where Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Simon, son of John. Now remember when Jesus met Peter, he named him Rocky. Because Jesus is going to build his church, his community of followers, on this rock. But Peter knows he hasn't been a rock to Jesus. He's been much more like sinking sand. And so Jesus is honest is here. Jesus is honest here. He doesn't call him Rocky. He uses his full name like your mom does when you're in trouble. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? More than these what? It's totally ambiguous. Do you love me more than these people love me? Do you love me more than you love these people? I don't know. I read it as both. Do you love me the most of these friends? In your heart, do you love me the most? And this is the question. Jesus has gone straight to the heart of the wound between him and Peter. This is the question, and it's a real question, given what Peter has done. Do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And can't you just hear the grief in Peter's reply? His voice breaking because he does love Jesus more than these and he knows Jesus knows, but he got scared and he screwed up so bad and he knows Jesus knows that too. So he's almost like, you know I love you and you know what I've done. And Jesus replies, feed my lambs. Now, Jesus has talked about himself as the good shepherd, so this is pretty clear. He's saying, take care of the people I care for. And Jesus asks him this question three times. And each time Peter says yes, and each time Peter gives a, uh, Jesus gives a slightly different response, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And there's a sermon that would parse out the nuances of these different replies, but this is not that sermon. What I want you to see here is that Jesus' reply to Peter is Jesus saying, I know you love me, Peter. It's okay. He's saying it without saying it because sometimes that's how relationships have to get healed. Because Jesus is bringing Peter back into a relationship of trust. I'm trusting you, Peter. I'm trusting your love for me even though you betrayed me. I know you love me. And I'm trusting you to take care of the people I love. Well, Jesus asked Peter three times if he loves him. And by the third time, Peter is hurt that Jesus is still asking. That's hilarious, given what he's done. Isn't that just how we are? Like, oh, Jesus. Yeah, I denied knowing you while you went to your death. But how many times do I have to say I love you? Three times? And here Peter is like all of us. Whenever we've done wrong, we just want to fast forward to the part where it's okay again. 
And what Peter can't see in the moment is that Jesus is letting him erase his three denials. Three times Peter said, I don't know that man. Jesus doesn't want those denials to be Peter's last word. So he asked three times, so that three times Peter can answer with love, each declaration of love canceling out a denial, and they can be friends again. And then at the end, Jesus prophesies over Peter. He says, when you're old, you're going to be led where you don't want to go. And legend says that Peter died a martyr in Rome where he was the first bishop, the first pope, crucified upside down at his own insistence because he said he didn't deserve to die the same way his friend had. He was led where he didn't want to go. That love for Jesus, feeding lambs, tending sheep, it cost him his life. The same life that he'd once impulsively declared he'd be glad to give and then he held it back. In the end, he willingly and freely gave it. As a consequence of that love, he declared after breakfast on the beach. Peter broke his friendship with Jesus when he denied him and ran from him. But on the beach, Jesus makes him a friend again. Jesus makes Peter an equity partner in the family business, so to speak, knowing what it will cost Peter in the end. Knowing that for the sake of love, Peter will lay down his life gladly and freely laying it down daily in the service of living and laying it down once and for all in the pain of dying. Simon, son of John, do you love me? No one has greater love than this, Jesus said, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And what this means is, what this resurrection story means, and it is impossible to overstate the significance of this, What this means is that the word of God made resurrected flesh, the same word of God through whom all things were created, came to a beach one morning 2,000 years ago and gave fishing advice and cooked breakfast and he did it all to make things right with his friend. I'm going to wrap up now and finish things off, but this is what I want to leave you with. Jesus doesn't love humanity. What the heck is humanity anyway? He loves you. Jesus is no philanthropist. He's a friend. Jesus is your friend, even if you don't know it. Just as you are, he's your friend if you'll have him. And I want you to know three things about this. First, You haven't let Jesus down worse than Peter did, no matter what you've done. And Jesus came back for Peter. So you, all of you, each of you, yeah, you, are priority number one for Jesus. He wants to be your friend. He wants you to be his friend. And the friendship of Jesus doesn't mean that your troubles will go away because that's not what friends do. But the company of a friend changes how you go through the good and the bad of life. Second, you can do this. You can be a friend to Jesus. He can be your friend. Before I became a Christian, this kind of talk drove me crazy. Like, Jesus is your best friend. Are you kidding? He's not here. And fair, he's not here like you and I are here. But now I'm a guy in my 40s. And if you're a dude in your 40s, you know how hard it is to make friends. And so when I meet people I like, I've started just asking them straight up, do you want to be friends? Seriously, like I'm in the third grade. 
because life's too short and too hard not to have friends. And what I've discovered is you can come to God with the same posture. Want to be friends? And that's a ridiculous thing to say to the creator of the universe, but that's the good news. That the God of all things comes to us in friendship and has held out God's hand for all eternity for us to grasp. That we can experience friendship with Jesus through the Holy Spirit, a real presence. You can take that posture of friendship in your heart when you come to God in prayer or worship. Try being friends with Jesus this morning while we sing, while we pray, while you receive communion. And third and last, friendship with God means being a friend to God's people. It means being a friend to the people in this room. You may have heard of the Quakers. Their real name is the Society of Friends. The the Quakers get it. They get it. To be a Christian is to be a friend. You can't be everybody's friend, but you can be somebody's friend. And the world is so lonely, it needs friends real bad. And you're it. Jesus told Peter, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. Friendship with me means friendship with my flock. I know each individual voice, he says, I hear them crying. Take care of them the way a friend does. So be a friend. Talk to somebody standing alone, maybe kind of awkwardly at coffee hour. Join a connect group and be there for each other week in and week out. Text that person you haven't talked to in way too long. Just be kind, because somebody held the door open for you on your way in here. Hold it open for the person coming after you, because friends make friends. And maybe it's your friendship that tells a lonely, hurting person that Jesus wants to be friends with them. Love you guys.